Good morning. Glad you're here today. Everybody glad you're here today. I'm grateful for the seven that are. <laughs> it's good to be together today. Uh, I think Sunday mornings are uh, local church can be the best thing going when you're with a group of people that are real, that live out their faith and encourage one another. And uh, it, it's, it's good to be here today. We uh, had some really good news that we've been holding on to for a long time. Uh, Hannah and our son-in-law, Johnny, uh, and Hannah shared with us a, a, a while back, but they made it public, but Hannah is pregnant and we're going to be grandparents. How cool is that? <laughs> so I'll introduce to you, Pappy Brown. Here I am. <laughs> hey, Johnny, we rejoice, bro. <laughs> And, uh, and so I get to continue that legacy that my father did so well. He was a great pappy. On the East Coast, we call them pappies and grandmas. And, uh, and so dad was a great pappy. Our kids adored him, and so did our, my siblings' children. And I get to carry on that. And Anne gets to be Grandma Brown. So uh, it's been fun knowing that for a while. And it's fun to finally be able to share that with you. And I believe we are grandparents, not will be. The baby is alive and living uh, and has been since conception. And uh, so we're grateful that we are grandparents. Yes, praise God for that. Timothy is hearing these words from a veteran, Paul. It's been good for me to listen and learn from Paul here in the New Testament too. He's on his final lap. He's on the gun lap. And so he's trying to give away all this information that he can because this is the last book that he wrote. And so he's in prison. And so he, he's getting near the end of this letter. And, he, and he's reminding Tim today, never stop living no matter what comes your way. We must never stop living even when times become difficult. While we still have breath, God has purpose for our lives. Otherwise, we'll become like those who step away and God daily wants us to live while we're in this world that seems to be spinning out of control. And so along the way, I'd like to learn from other people too. I'd like to learn from people that do it well. Some are young, some are older. And, and so for many years, for about 50, 20 years actually, I would meet every month and sometimes twice a month with a, a man by the name of Glenn Sharp. He was about 30 years older than me. And he would come and take me out for lunch, and I would sit and listen to him. And he has, he's with the Lord, but he was an incredible evangelist. He would share Christ. And I remember on one occasion, near the end of his uh, earthly time on earth, he came into the offices here, and he stopped by, and he was meeting me for lunch. And, and so we had a great relationship. We talked very candidly, and he would always make me laugh. And even in his late 80s, he always had a great sense of humor. But we were walking out to his car, and he always drove big boats. It was a good thing because he was a horrible driver, and, and he knows that. I told him that over and over again. I prayed for my salvation over and over in his car. <laughs> Even though you can't lose it, I was just making sure. Um, but uh, one time I went out to go in his car, and the whole side of the passenger side, from I'm not kidding you, from the taillight to the front light, it was dented on the whole side. So... I get in his car, make sure the passenger door opens up, and I sat down. He got in, sat down like nothing's wrong. And at first, I said, dude, you have an airbag on this side? He said, why? 
I said, man, the passenger just about got wiped out here. I said, he says, uh, yeah, I have an airbag. He said, and so I said, I just want to make sure because, man, your car is a wreck. He said, well, you can't be good at everything. <laughs> that was a great line. Now, this is the same man. He's, he's impacted my life. Um, I, I did his funeral, um, but he was shopping at the mall, Concord Mall, and as he was going through Concord Mall, he's always looking for people to talk to about Jesus, and he, he was in his later stage of life, and he went past a jewelry store, and he said, man, I saw this person that really looked sad, and he said, I felt like God was telling me I need to go talk to them, and so he would just go up and talk, so he, he walked over, and he said, man, Jim, their eyes were hollow, they had a sad look to them, and they were by the counter, by the, by the jewelry counter, he said, so I leaned in, and I asked him, he said, hey, do you know Jesus? And he said, there was a lady beside me that just squealed. And I said, man, what's wrong? And she said, well, that's a mannequin you're talking to right there. <laughs> <laughs> he said, well, I, I saw that they look hollow and sad, and I figured they need Jesus. <laughs> that's funny. That's funny. And at his funeral, I found this out. Um, people came up. He had, I think, half of the funeral that was there, he had led to Christ. And, but a, a gal came up and said, have you heard this story? I just want to know about Glenn. He went in to a bathroom, a community bathroom, and while he was in there, he was washing his hands, and he said it was a large glass, and he's washing his hands. This is near the end of his life, and you know, he had practiced sharing Christ so often. And he looked up, and, he, and the lady said he looked up, and he, he started talking to himself. And he said, hey, do you know Jesus? <laughs> and she, um, the guy was in there, came out, saw that she was with him. She said, is, is everything okay with him? And she said, why? He said, well, he was, he was in there talking to himself in the mirror about Jesus. Said, so then I asked him why. He said, well, that guy looked sad too. I want to make sure he knew Jesus too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I just picture Paul and Timothy having those kind of conversations. And this is what this book is. It's a letter to an older man, to a younger man, telling him, this is how I believe God wants you to live your life. Grab your Bibles and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, 2 Timothy chapter 3, 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to read verses 10 through 17 of 2 Timothy, and would you stand with me as we read it, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 to 17. So picture, if you can, draw a picture of this, Paul's in prison. He's chained, he's, he's got probably rats running through the prisons, he's barely fed, he's, he's, he's recording his last words, and this is what he says to young Timothy in verse 10. We're going to read to verse 17. Would you read it for me? Ready, read. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, and what kind of things happened to me in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, the persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evildoers and imposters will come, bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you've learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. 
All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You may have a seat. You always have to ask the question when a pericope or paragraph ends with however. So there must have been something before the however that kind of changes the direction of this letter. So last week, we looked at the 19 adjectives that Paul (laughs) described the the conditions of evil in the world. And he says, however, even though this is true, all this evil is true, however, look what he says again. He says, however, know all about, you know all about my teaching, my way of life and purpose, faith, love, endurance, persecutions, and these kind of things, why they happen to me. He says, even though this is going on, you can still learn from my life as I walk through these challenging times. So he's trying to hand off, in other words, he's saying, you can make it too, because with Christ, it's possible. He's reminding him to not be discouraged, even though the church that he will go into will be full of darkness and death and evil, and and, and Nero is ruling Rome right now, and he's called the beast, and Christians are being literally murdered and, and imprisoned, even though it appears like it's a horrible time to be a pastor and it's a horrible time to be a Christian. Learn from my example. It is possible to live in the middle of all that. Let's hit the pause button for a second and just reflect. Life has been and always will be filled with evil. It'll always be filled with death. It'll always be filled with sadness and sickness. But as Christ's followers, as Paul's trying to convince Timothy, we can flourish in the middle of the hardship. God has strategically placed you and me right here at Grace Community Church today and in this world today at a, in a time of history where I'm telling you, the darker the night, the brighter the light. We have a chance to elevate Jesus the way we live our lives. And while we don't know the exact day of the return of Christ, we can live as people with hope until he does come. Would you agree with that? It is possible to do that. Why? Because the joy of the Lord is our strength. The reasons we can be hopeful are many. And so this week, I began to just kind of just do an honest evaluation of myself and like, what are the things that, what are my go-tos? Like this week, I had to go to a lot of those. We had some really challenging deaths and and people that I personally love. I did two funerals and a shotgun wedding and a 30-minute wedding this week because the bride had to have a heart transplant on on, uh, that night. And so mom called me, Alicia Blosser called me and said that their daughter was getting married on Saturday and that on this day, Thursday, that someone had passed away near the hospital that they were at and she had been placed, she was going to marry Tony Woods, who, who both of them come here, they're in their 20s, and she said they got a call that there was a heart on ice and they needed to get to Cleveland Clinic right away because this heart was available for Kimberly, who had thought that, that she was low on the list and it would be about three years. But to complicate those matters, they were getting married Saturday and this was Thursday. And she said this, she said, Pastor Jim, it's an emergency. And she said, "Um, would you marry Kimberly and Tony? 
And I said, well, when would you like for it to happen? And, and uh, she said, well, in 30 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what I said? Okay. And so they rush to the church. Our pastoral staff and the staff that was here went to the south, and Pastor Jeremy got some, uh, some pro presenter slides ready, Kimberly and Tony, and some music, and uh, Pastor Mike grabbed some of the bubbles that we had left over, and, <laughs> and we kind of worked our way to the south. They called their friends, and groomsmen were running in as, as we were getting started, and Anthony and his wife attend here, and they called parents, and a few people showed up, and before we knew it, there's 25 people within a 30-minute period, 30 people probably in the south auditorium, and um, they came up, and in a, a ceremony about five minutes, I presented them as husband and wife by the power invested in me in the state of Indiana. Um, I, under God, I presented them, and then the whole South Auditorium abrupted, and they stood up and cheered and blew bubbles. And, <laughs> and they were packed. I mean, it was like a scene from um, a, a movie. It was romantic. It was beautiful. It was... And so they headed right away um, to Cleveland. Imagine that for a second. Like, knowing that your bride is going to have her heart taken out of her and a new one placed in, that the, the chance that she might not make it. But praise God, she did make it. And, uh, and the good news is I have a friend in Cleveland that's a pastor that saw my post and he connected with me and he says, Jim, we got a guest house right here in Cleveland. Tell them and their family they can stay for free and they can stay as long as they like. And he said, not only that, he said, my daughter's in a small group here and her husband. And they tell them that the small group already said that they'll feed them as long as they're here. They want to care for them. And it was just beautiful watching this take place. Yeah, praise God. Why did I tell you all that? Because there's power being connected to the body of Christ and gathering together. So I asked myself, what, is it, what are the essentials that I've learned that keep me going? And these, these are mine. They might not be yours, and, and, and I'll share. This is, if you were to open me up, this is what keeps me going. This is what I've learned from God's word and from others. And the first one is this. Jesus is my forever friend. He chose me and loves me, and I get to love God. I don't have to love God and I get to share the good news with others. That's an incredible blessing. Secondly, I would say this. My future is secure, and everywhere I go, God goes with me. He lives in me. That's incredible. It, just pause. Like, ever since four and a half years old, I'm 59. I'll be 60 in January. And ever since then, for 54 years, 55 years, God has been with me, and not only with me, but he dwells in me. Thirdly, I would say this, this is the intangibles that I've learned, impossible is possible with our possible God, and faith is a gift that God has given us, yet few use it. You see, God gave you the faith to believe in him, 
And that same faith that saved you lives in you. You and I have the chance to exercise it and to believe and trust in God. And so when the opportunity presents himself, I'm going to believe by faith if he could do the miracle. Think about this. We'd lose sight of this. If someone in our auditorium came walking down and they had a limb that was, their leg was six inches shorter than the other, and they limped their way down and made their way down, and we came as a church, and the church prayed, for sake of an example, suppose their leg was completely healed and it grew six inches. We would probably clap and cheer and like, man, did you see what God did? Yet the greatest miracle ever is that God can take a person that's dead, bring them back to life, and save them eternally. Salvation is the greatest miracle on planet Earth. Yet somehow measure those two responses, they're different. I am eternally saved from hell forever. God lives in me. I am not just a child. I'm a child of God. That's a miracle. Fourthly, I would say this. My past sins are forgiven forever. I don't have time to maintain my regrets. And we did a quick search I did for Friday night at our fight club gathering. I went through this list of what God does with our sins. And, and quickly, he puts them behind his back. Passages says he hurls our sins into the depths of the sea. He chooses not to remember them more. He takes away the sins of the world. He does not count them anymore against us. He nailed them to the cross. He canceled them, and he did all that for us. So why would we keep going back and reminding ourselves with the regrets of the past when God himself doesn't even choose to remember them anymore? That's good news. So what, we forget what is behind and we press on towards the goal of finishing well for Christ. Fifthly, I would say this, no weapon formed against me will prosper. No one and nothing can stand against our God and God stands inside of me for me so I shouldn't fear or be discouraged. That's an intangible that I believe and I live out. Sixthly, I would say, God is sovereignly in control of this world and my life. Nothing that comes my way surprises my God. So Jim, God's got it, move on. Seventhly, I would say, God promises to supply all my needs. Even in my final lap, there has never been a second in my life that he hasn't provided. He promises even in my 60s, my 70s, if I'm here in my 80s, he, re- he promises. So why even think about if you'll have enough then? Just be responsible, be a good steward. God has provided everything up to now. If somehow when you turn 65, he's not going to provide for you anymore. No, he promises bank on it. Eighthly, I would say this, death is not the end for me. In fact, the best I've ever experienced will come when I breathe my last breath. God will take care of my family when I pass. I have responsibility, financial responsibility. I want to make good decisions, make sure there's life insurance for my bride, and there is. I want to make sure that our house and our vehicles and our possessions are in both names so that she doesn't have to work through the legal system to make that happen. I'm doing everything I can to provide for her, but when I die, God will step in and continue to provide for her. I can bank on that. 
Ninthly, God has given us this life to enjoy. I believe this with all of my heart. The original declaration in the, in the beginning, the Garden of Eden, God made man, he made plants, he made seas, he made everything, and nobody said it is good. Now go and enjoy this, Adam and Eve. And so we should enjoy people, You should love your spouse, your family, your friends. You should laugh more, smile more, and be positive because God says it's good and he is with you. That's an intangible. When I wake up, that's what I think about. Lastly, I would say this. Joy is a choice. It's where I find my strength. The joy of the Lord is my strength. And as I age, I continue to see that to be true. It strips me of worry. I am not a person who worries. I don't even mess there. Why? Because God's done all these other things. It brings a peace in the middle of the storm. In fact, joy in your life attracts and connects you to all age groups. It does. They see something in you because of what you have in Jesus. Now, there were 10 sermons right there. Take them all home. That's me, that's Jim Brown. Cut me open, there I am. Where did I get all of that? I got them from people like Paul. I got them from the word of God. I got them from the Glenn Sharps in my lives. I got them from the Jay Bells in my lives. I got them from my, my wife and my children and people and godly men that I hang with. Like Those are the, the things that I've learned and Paul's telling Timothy, take all those things, my life. Apply it, it is possible to stand in the valley of the shadow of death and praise the Lord. Paul says, learn from me. I've said this many times and I believe this with all of my heart. You show me your friends, I'll show you your future. Who you surround yourself with shapes you. Their philosophies, if they're they're a lover of Jesus, they will shape you. They will point you to Jesus. Bad company corrupts good character, 1 Corinthians tells us. My friend Jay Bell was one of my greatest mentors in my life. And I remember the first time I met Jay 30 years ago. But he taught me more about the spirit world with a balanced, conservative, evangelical view that I had never heard. My whole life, never heard wasn't spooky, it wasn't weird, it was real. And I just sat at his feet and learned from him. I remember the first time he told me how we have angels that are ministering spirits, Hebrews 1.14, that God calls out when we pray, God assigns them, he sends them to protect and care as ministering spirits. That we have a spirit help in a spirit world. I remember the first time he told me, he says, Jim, you're a spirit being, your God is a spirit being, the enemy is a spirit being, and you have spirit beings called angels that are helping you, and you have spirit beings that are against you called demons, and he says, too many Christians in our world have only a physical worldview, and they never ever rely upon the strength of the spirit world, and not only that, they never acknowledge that it's true. I remember the first time he told me that in in Ephesians chapter six, where he says, Jim, you're supposed to put on the armor of God. You should put it on every single morning. I had heard that as a kid, but I never, he showed me the nuances of the Greek that says put on, which keep on putting on. It's a continuous action. It's not, I dress once and I'm good for the rest of the week. You don't do that with your physical clothes. 
Like, what you have on today, have you worn that for 10 straight weeks? If so, man, something wrong. No, so you put on, and I can't put it on for my kids. I can't put it on for my wife. I can't put it on for you. And so even as our kids grew up, we would put placards and Anne would paint the armor of God so that when they brushed their teeth in the morning, they were putting on the armor of God. Parents, do you even teach your kids about the spirit world? As they're getting physically dressed, are they getting spiritually dressed? I remember he's the first that told me, he says, Jim, it's like this. He was a two-tour veteran of, uh, 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 in, in the, during the Vietnam War. He floated a boat down the Mekong River. He said, Jim, it's like this. It, it'd be like you going out to the battlefield in your Speedo. Something would be wrong with that, wouldn't it? He said, it'd be like an infantry guy coming and going to battle and saying, I'm ready for battle. No gun, no weapon, no clothes, nothing at all. Walking out in his speedo. He said, Christians do it all the time. Let me ask you a question. Don't, how many of you are sitting in your speedo today? You didn't even put on the armor of God. We have protection from the Spirit's arrows being shot at us from an enemy who wants to destroy And the power we have is spoken by putting on the scripture, Ephesians chapter. When we travel as mission teams, I'm all the time telling our teams as we stop, did you put on the armor of God this morning? We pray over things that we purchase from from the shops because we don't know. You don't know. Maybe someone went in there and tried to cast a spell on that object and you're taking that back to your home. We throw our luggage on the ground and we pray over it and say, God, bless this. We are in a spirit world with a spirit enemy and he's tricky. I remember the first time he told me about demons. He said, Jim, they are real. Demons are real. And so you can battle against these demons. He helped shape my worldview on Halloween. I'm not here to judge you today what you do with Halloween. But I remember him looking at me. He says, Jim, why would you celebrate a holiday for the enemy? He said, why would you introduce your little kids to a holiday that every year they look forward to on October the 30th, 1st, that they celebrate unknowingly, maybe even not even saved yet, that you would open up your kids to a holiday that worships the devil, that for the rest of their lives, in their teens, they begin to do it. He said, why would you ever do that? And you know what? We didn't in our home. And guess what? Our kids are okay without it. (laughs) I remember the first time he told me that worship pushes pushes back darkness. I didn't fully understand that. He says, Jim, do you realize in the Old Testament that before an army of infantry soldiers would go out, they would send out worshipers first? I said, yeah, that's great. He said, no, do you know why? It's because... The worshipers prepare the way in the spirit world against the the demonic attack that's coming down in the spirit world. He said most people don't realize that there's a spirit battle taking place as much as there's a physical battle taking place. He says so when we worship God, it pushes back darkness. Dads, husbands, hear me. You are the gatekeeper of your home. God has given you the opportunity to protect 
the door of your home. Are you a worshiper? Oh, here goes Jim's worship speech again. Yeah, here it comes again. Why? Because you as the gatekeeper should be the largest, loudest, greatest worshiper of Jesus in the home. Yes, your wife should be with you and your kid, but you should be leading the way. When you and I worship Jesus on Sunday morning, here's what happens. Darkness is pushed back. There's a protective hedge placed around you and your family. Why? Because the enemy hates giving glory to his, his enemy. So sing. I said Friday night to our men, God has given you two instruments. They're called hands. Use them. Acknowledge him. Let him know, God, you are God. This isn't to bring attention to me. This is to bring attention to you. Amen. I remember when I was, he was unpacking all this information to me, and I just wrote it down. I wrote it down. I wrote it down. And I was like Timothy listening to, to Paul. And so Paul says to young Timothy, these things I'm teaching you, apply them to your life. My teaching, he says, by the way, he wrote 13 books in the New Testament. And by the way, they have been bestsellers for 2,000 years. He says, look at my way of life. He was consistent. He walked the talk. When you go for advice from someone, suppose you want to be a coach. Do you go to someone who has a losing record and apply their principles? If your marriage is in trouble, do you go to someone whose marriage is turned upside down? No, you go to someone where God has stepped in, they're applying biblical principles, and, and you see what they're doing. If you're an entrepreneur or business owner, you're not gonna sit with someone who has failed business after failed business after failed business after failed business after failed. No, you're gonna sit with someone who has learned principle. So hear me out, advice is cheap. If you're taking your marriage into your workplace and you're asking someone for advice and their marriage is turned upside down, listen to me, quit it. They're not impacted. Go to someone whose marriage, by God's grace, is intact and flourishing. Go to someone whose business is flourishing. Go to a coach that done it well. And he says, not only that, go to someone else who's trusted in Jesus and by God's grace, they're walking the talk. He said, follow my purpose. Purpose is the Greek word prothesis, which is for theos, God. Friday night, we had a testimony time. And at our kickoff for Fight Club, we saw 12 men trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And yes, praise God. Yes, praise God. And one of these men... One of these men was Derek. So I saw him. He's easy to see because he's six foot eight and about 250. It's like, so I turned and talked to him like this, like, dude, I want you as an offensive lineman if I got the ball. So I saw him. I said, Derek, how's it going? You've known Christ for five weeks. What's it been like in your house? What's it been like to be a husband and a dad? He said, Jim, it's a lot different. I said, well, explain it to me. He says, you know, I, I've been reading the Bible at the table with my wife, to, my, to my kids, 
And he said, my wife is in the other room and she sees me reading and I invite her in right now. He says, I don't want to force it. He said, but she's listening. He said, and, and, and to be honest, Jim, he said, there's like there's something in me that makes me alive. I said, there is. <laughs> it's called the Holy Spirit. But he went on to say, and he said, my wife told me this. She said, you're different. <laughs> he, she said, I don't know what you did with those guys out in the woods five weeks ago, but you're a lot different. His purpose is different. And Paul says, my faith, my patience, my love, my persecutions, my sufferings. There's a clear reflection of an action of what we believe by the way we live. It's the Greek word agape, love, he uses here. It might not be what you want to hear, Paul says, but I'm going to tell you the truth because I love you. He said, my persecutions, it's the emotional negatives that want to come over you that you push out in the middle of the persecution. I'll never forget my first trip into Iraq with our first team when ISIS was hitting Iraq and we felt like God wanted us to go and we did and we flew into Erbil and we landed at three in the morning and it was 120 degrees, and, and to be quite frank, we didn't know whether we were going to come back, but we knew God wanted us to go, and I had a conversation with Pastor Malat, the pastor that we connected with, and I went to him, I just brother to brother, pastor to pastor, I said, man, this must be challenging for you and your church. I said, you got people f- fleeing from Syria, they're coming down through northern Kurdistan, your city is full of tents under the bridges, and I said, man, your people have, they don't know whether ISIS is going to knock them off or lop their heads off. I, I said, man, what's it like? He said, you know what, Jim? This is good for my church. Explain that to me, Malath. He says, our church was getting soft. He said, they were relying too much on themselves. They were comfortable. They had good jobs. And they were following their kids around everywhere, just like every place does. And he said, persecution drew us back to Jesus Christ. He said, this is the best thing that has happened to our church. That's a man I want to sit with. In verse 14, he says this. Here's what he tells him. Look what he says in verse 14. Chapter 3, in verse 14, he says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you have learned it. Chuck Swindoll said this about this verse, and I really like what he said. I like Chuck Swindoll. He's a very practical theologian. He says, there is a great connection between remembrance and continuance. Those that finish strong do so because they don't forget what they've been taught. This week, I asked our men in one of our challenges for Fight Club to write down what they would tell their 20-year-old self. What would you tell your 20-year-old self? What would I, as a 59-year-old man, tell my 20-year-old self? And I screenshot after screenshot after screenshot our Fight Club app because wisdom was just surfacing from the pages. I want to continue to learn from my brothers. And there was wisdom and wisdom and wisdom and wisdom that was popping from the pages. Continue to do what you've been told. The greatest gift when I pass will not be what I left, but what I left in others. Yesterday I went for a run 
And I've been impacted not only by men, but women and my own family, my own parents. I was going for a run, and I enjoy running. I run outside at the Benton Spillway. And so I got out of my Jeep and started to run, and it started to rain. I'm telling you, it was just buckets full. And I was drenched. And I just started giggling. I was running and laughing, just laughing. It was just it was like, all right, guy, we're going to have some fun. And I'm running, and I'm laughing, I'm running, I'm laughing. I was soaked to the core, put in four miles in the rain, and man, mud up to, was splashing up all over me. And it was, it was a great moment. And the reason it was because when I was little, our mom drilled into me this mantra. Rain, hail, lightning, thunder, the Browns and the Andersons will never go under. Never, never, never. And as I ran, I was yelling, never, never, never. (laughs) Remember what you learn and continue it when you're 59 and it's pouring down rain when you're running. Please think about legacy because every day you're writing it. Here's my definition of legacy. Legacy is the very first thing you think about someone when you hear their name. That's legacy. It's the first thought that comes to mind when you think about someone's name. So what is that? I'll give you an example. I want you to think the first thought that comes to mind when you hear these names. Just keep them to yourself. Abe Lincoln. Your best friend. Tom Brady. Ronald Reagan. Michael Jordan. Garth Brooks. Billy Graham, Mother Teresa, your mom, your dad, Jim Brown, keep that one to yourself, (laughs) Jesus, the last one, you. What's the first thought? That's your legacy. The first thought that comes to mind about someone is their legacy. So Paul ends this up with one of the most beautiful passages in Scripture about the Word of God. And look what he says in verse 15. And he said, How from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which his grandmother and mother taught him, You have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Then he says, all Scripture is God what? What's your Bible say? Breathe and is what? What's it say? Useful for what? Teaching and what else? Rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. How much of Scripture? All Scripture. Then he says, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Bible is God-breathed, it's alive, it's active, and it's a living organism. So this book that we have in our hands, these words, and by the way, when you speak these words, when you pray these scriptures, 
It's alive and active. It brings life to you and it projects life into rooms and darkness. It's living words. It's more than just the 26 letters of the alphabet. When they're spoken in the context of God's word, it breathes life into you. How do I know that? Genesis 2-7, it says that when God created man and woman, it says he went down to man and he breathed life into his nostrils. That same breath, Genesis 2-7, that brought that dead carcass alive is the same breath that the word of God, it's God breathed. And so it might look just like white pages, and in my case, all torn up and all marked up, and it might just look like another book, but I'm telling you, there's no book on your shelf that's alive because it's God-breathed than the Bible. So why wouldn't we spend time in a book that's alive, that breathes life in us? Martin Luther said this about the Bible I love this quote, he said, the Bible is alive, it speaks to me, it has feet, it runs after me, it has hands, it lays a hold of me, it is trustworthy. You know, the truth is this, the Bible says, what the Bible says, we can believe it because it validates itself. We don't need proof that the Bible is true because we're wrong and the Bible is right. (laughs) In fact, this morning, Josh, our older son, sent us this finding, just, just came in our family text thread. This just happened. This was just put on the New York Post. In the recent days, God continues to reveal Dead Sea Scrolls, he continues through archaeology to reveal things that, that, that I would say affirm the word of God. This just came on, fresh on the news, finally came to light in regards to the Bible. It says, archaeologist claims Mount Sinai found in Saudi Arabia. It says, experts believe they're finally, they finally found one of the holiest sites in the Bible, miles from where it was previously assumed to have existed. A biblical archaeologist organization, this is the name of the organization, the Dowling Thomas Research Foundation, claims it has found the actual mountain where, according to the Old Testament, Moses led the Israelites, a mountain that was enveloped in smoke, fire, and thunder, and where at the top Moses received the Ten Commandments from God. But in actuality, the society now claims Mount Sinai, one of the most sacred places in Jewish, Christian, and Islamic religion, is Jabal Makla, which lies in Jabal Atzal Mountain Range in Saudi Arabia. One of the main reasons certain scholars claim that, that the Exodus is a myth is because little to no evidence for what the Bible records has been found at the traditional Mount Sinai in Egypt's Sinai Peninsula. Foundation President Ryan Mauro, who is a Middle East expert, told the Sun this. But what if these scholars have actually been looking in the wrong spot, he noted. Move over into the Arabian Peninsula and you find incredibly compelling evidence matching the biblical account. Maclis has, had, he says, Jabel Makla has blackened peaks as if scorched by the sun or fire. 
and lies near Nubia Beach where scientists have found land paths underneath the water where God would have parted the waters for Moses and the Israelites. Though they were followed by Egyptians and chariots, when the Israelites reached land on the other side of the water, the sea consumed the Egyptians. A chariot-like shape was found in the coral in that area. According to Swedish scientist Dr. Moeller, who noted to the outlet that the metal and wood had long ago disintegrated. On the way from the beach to the possible Mount Sinai, is a large split rock with signs of water erosion. Despite being in the middle of a desert, we believe this distinct landmark could be the rock that God commanded Moses to strike, which the water gushed forth from miraculously providing for the Israelite population. The experts also discovered a site which appeared to be an altar near the base of the mountain akin to the altar Moses is said to have built at the foot of Mount Sinai from uncut stones. Also nearby is a graveyard which Myra theorizes is the site where the worshipers of the golden calf were struck down by Moses for idolatry. Close to the mountain we have this site covered with depictions of people worshiping bulls and cows. Mauro told the son, and what's really significant is that these petroglyphs are isolated to the area. It's not like they're carved all over the mountain. Can I just say this? We don't need proof to tell us that the Bible is true. It is true. But God gives us these little glimpses to help us believe. I believe this with all of my heart, that there's a connection between a person who reads the word of God and the one who doesn't. I'm amazed at how few people spend regular time in God's word. If you spend some time with someone who is faith-filled, joy-filled, love-filled, who stands in the midst of the hardest thing they've ever experienced and praises the Lord, I will guarantee you they read the word. Why? Because it gives us life. For lack of better words, chomp, 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 chomp. Eat God's word. It will nourish you. So Paul closes this up and It says that the Bible is useful for teaching, rebuking, and correcting. You see, when you take a step away from God's word, you're taking a step away from what is living and life-giving. Teaching. Sit under teaching. Learn from God's word. That's what I'm trying to do today. Rebuking. Doesn't the word of God rebuke you sometimes? It convinces us to behave differently. It reveals the foolishness in the ways. And then it corrects us. Rebuking reveals sin. Correcting shows how to straighten out what we've done wrong. It's when I'm driving away and I've been wrong to my wife and she's been right and she responds in a godly way. It's when the spirit comes and rebukes me and convicts me and says, Jim, you were wrong again. Stink. (laughs) Correcting of God's word does what? Says, Jim, pick up the phone. You got to do it again. Hey, baby, I'm sorry, you were right. (laughs) 
That's what the Word of God does to you. The author of Hebrews said this about the Word of God in 4 verses 12 to 13. He said the Word of God is alive and it's active. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. It divides the soul and spirit, the bone and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nobody ever outgrows Scripture. The book widens and deepens with our years. So how would I wrap this up? When, Paul says, Tim, when the world beats you down, open up your Bible and let this life-breathing word from God help you to stand in the middle of the mess. God, we love you. You are a great, great God. We need you. We need you every day of our lives. We need you every second of our lives, even when we think we don't. Your word is powerful and effective. It's, it's sharper than a two-edged sword. It's the word from you. It's your breath being spoken into us. So God, now we sing a song that declares that truth and we're asking for the word of God to speak to us. So as we sing, I, I encourage you to declare these truths. And not only as we sing to declare them, to remind yourselves to spend time in God's word because God's word speaks to us clearly. Word of God speak. In Jesus' name, amen.